Four years ago, Labour was at an all-time low. Jeremy Corbyn had led the party to its worst general election defeat since 1935. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. But now, Sir Keir Starmer's party looks closer to power than at any time it has done since 2010. And with many voters effectively now looking over Rishi Sunak's shoulder, more and more people are asking a blunt question. What would Labour actually do? This special iPodcast series, Labour's Plan for Power, is all about that question. So we'll talk to independent experts about what Labour could do in office and to politicians about what it should do. And we'll hear from the people writing Labour policy and who'll sit in Starmer's first cabinet if he wins power. I'm Paul War, Chief Political Commentator of The Eye, the only national newspaper that has never supported a political party. We tell it straight and hold all the politicians to account. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, and this podcast is no different. This episode is all about the North-South divide. Will Labour finally make levelling up a reality? How will it bridge the big economic gulf that still exists between the South East and the rest of the country? Can its plans to devolve more power from Whitehall really make a difference? And will any of this help it win back the Red Wall of the North and the Midlands? I keep saying the North-South divide is no accident. It's the product of UK national policy over many decades under many governments. And we either decide to change it or we don't. I don't think it's going to be easy or simple to pull off. And we'll hear from Angela Rayner, Labour's Deputy Prime Minister in waiting. And when people feel they have control over what they're trying to achieve, they own it. you just got to give people a little bit more empowerment and it's surprising how well that can pay off. When Boris Johnson bulldozed through a white wall of polystyrene bricks in December 2019, it was the most eye-catching stunt of the entire general election. The symbolism was all about him smashing the Westminster gridlock over Brexit. And a few weeks later, he demolished the red wall of Labour seats in the North and Midlands. Part of Johnson's appeal to those voters was a promise to level up the country. There is a vision for the future of this country in which we unite our amazing country and level up across the country with infrastructure, education and technology. Johnson had no shortage of statistics to support his case about the sheer inequality between different parts of the UK. A man in Blackpool lives an average of 10 years less than someone growing up in Hampshire. A child on free school meals is twice as likely to go to university if they grow up in London rather than outside London. There's inequality within regions too. One in five working-age people in Leeds aren't in work. In Bradford next door, the number is as high as one in three. But although Johnson produced the white paper on levelling up and even added the phrase to a whole Whitehall department and put Michael Gove in charge, his record proved patchy, to say the least. Despite £10 billion being promised in funding, a National Audit Office report found that just 64 of the 1,300 allegedly shovel-ready projects were on target to be delivered by March 2023. A minister confided to me that when he road-tested Johnson's levelling-up catchphrase amongst his constituents, one voter replied with the immortal words, 
You mean the potholes? And these days, Johnson's successor, Rishi Sunak, barely mentions the phrase levelling up at all. In fact, he was caught boasting to a group of Conservatives in leafy Tunbridge Wells in Kent that he'd diverted money from cities and towns. We inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party that shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas. Uh, and they, you know, that needed to be undone. I started the work of undoing that. Rachel Wolfe is the co-author of the 2019 Conservative Manifesto and a founding partner of the policy and polling agency Public First. She says their research has found that most of the public just don't feel levelled up, even though the concept was worthwhile. People can't see a lot tangibly that's improved in their area as a result of this levelling up idea. They want a better functioning high street. They don't want antisocial behaviour. They want to feel like they can get a GP appointment. All those prosaic things that make a difference between living in a place that is misery or happiness. So no one thinks levelling up's happened. It was always very poorly defined. It was never a particularly useful electoral slogan. But some of the things that you could say lie underneath it remain really important to people. Johnson had told voters he wanted to be a Brexity Hezer, a reference to Michael Heseltine, the former Tory cabinet minister who championed state intervention to regenerate deprived areas of the UK. But Lord Heseltine, who worked under Margaret Thatcher and John Major and advised David Cameron, tells me he's not exactly enamoured of the phrase or of Johnson's lack of delivery. I am afraid one has to recognise the Red Wall is a description that describes Labour constituencies that voted for Boris Johnson and his anti-European, anti-immigrant agenda. The levelling up, frankly, was just a a phrase. I mean, there was no serious momentum uh, in the Johnson premiership to build levelling up into a real policy. And he suggests Cameron achieve more through his new Metro mayors than his successor ever managed. The truth is that since the Prime Minister David Cameron, George Osborne Chancellor and Greg Clark as Secretary of State, they were the ones who really pioneered the mayoral authorities and the levelling up agenda in the middle of the uh, last decade. And since then, it's very much run out of steam. The state of Britain's high streets is something Sir Keir Starmer has certainly raised repeatedly since he became Labour leader. And breaking down barriers to opportunity and tackling the north-south divide is one of the so-called five missions he wants to implement in government. Critics say it's the least defined of his missions. The others are about economic growth, the NHS, net zero and crime, and all have specifics. But Starmer is promising a radical shift of powers away from Whitehall and London, across the regions of England, with things like housing, transport, energy, skills, and even childcare, devolved to local level. Jill Rutter of the Institute for Government Think Tank says that Labour is right to try to get a grip in opposition on what levelling up should mean in practice in government. She reveals that even Andy Haldane, the civil servant who was in charge of the new department and then a task force to deliver it, now admits there's been little progress. You heard Keir Starmer say it. This is going to be mission government. I quite like the sense of setting big high-level objectives without being too specific about the actual minutiae of what you're going to do. I'm sure Keir Starmer's office, Sue Gray as chief of staff, and working out is what does it actually mean to lead a mission-led government? You know, what does it mean 
for our traditional departmental silos, you know, within Whitehall, how do they translate those things into things where people can say things are visibly different? That, after all, is one of the things, where's the government tried briefly, uh, sort of mission-led government? It's on levelling up. Do people at the moment see any real outcomes from that? We had Andy Haldane here, you know, Permanent Secretary levelling up briefly, led the sort of task force for Michael Gove, saying, actually... No one's seen anything very concrete coming out of levelling up. As Johnson struggled to define what levelling up was, Rachel Wolfe suggested that one very simple symbol of change would be for people to see more hanging baskets of flowers in their town centre. She admits that even that simple ambition simply hasn't been achieved. Hanging baskets, I'm never going to live that down. So hanging baskets did come from focus groups. And actually, I feel it's both wonderful and terrible that I get credit for this. Because actually, Natasha Engel, the former Labour MP of a rebel seat, who worked with us at the time, did a bunch of focus groups on levelling up. And one of the things that came out frequently was people using hanging baskets as a symbol of when a town was doing well versus when it wasn't. So you can go into a town, you see that there are flowers around, there are, hang- there are hanging baskets. Like You can tell that this is a town that is doing okay. And so it became this kind of symbol of... The kind of small prosaic things that can make a very big difference to how people feel about a place they're living in. Obviously, if there's hanging baskets, but there are needles on the ground and no one's going to the shops because they're smashed in, it's not going to make a huge difference. But it was my attempt to say, you know, we, we love these grand theories in Westminster and they are important. And we love these grand projects of the sort of 30 year productivity improvements. But it is also important to be able to say to people who just voted for you, there's going to be something different within this parliament that shows you are on a path to something, and that can include making your high street look nicer. Angela Rayner, the shadow levelling up secretary and deputy leader of the Labour Party, tells I that levelling up has become a phrase that few believe in, but she thinks it taps into something that Labour can deliver, a reworking of the way Britain is wired. I think it's one of those phrases that can mean all things to all people. It sounds nice, doesn't it? Level up, it sounds nice. Yeah, we'll have a bit of that up, we're going up. I think the public are getting quite cynical about slogans. I I think, and cynical about how politics can really change their lives because they haven't seen that level of change in their communities. And that's why the levelling up agenda and the devolution is critical. And that national renewal for us is critical because you need to see some fundamental change. And Rayner says that talk of levelling up is cheap in places that have felt levelled down to the ground. What? A lot of people feel on the streets like they they see the inequalities and certainly in the deindustrialised areas like the towns that I represent, Thameside, Oldham, part of Great Manchester and other areas, for them they just feel like it's been piecemeal in terms of we've seen our high streets turn into poundland and things like that, factories that we had that have been pulled down and no industry's taken over. So people have felt uh, this sense of loss and nothing's replaced it. People feel that like it's decayed. Uh, I used to be dead proud of our town. We used to have like respect in it, you know, you know, that sense of pride in your area. The only other thing that's left is your football team. Industries gave them a thread and a bond of what they are. Ed Balls, the former cabinet minister, says the task won't be easy and points out that both Labour and Conservative governments have failed to properly address the problem for years. Well, the big picture, first of all, is that for all of our talk about levelling up and you know, in the Brown-Blair era, talking about tackling regional equality, regional equality has grown 
I mean, it's grown consistently decade after decade. So all of politics has failed to tackle regional inequality. The north-south divide has got bigger. We now have um, a bigger gap between the southeast and the rest of um, the UK than you see between east and west Germany or north and south Italy. So um, the politics of you know the red, the, the red wall, the north-south divide have become more acute in our country. And the reason is because the gaps have got wider. We didn't focus enough, but we didn't do well enough. That lack of focus, if you like. The failure to really agree across the country, across politics, on what we're going to do and get on and do it consistently has just been so damaging. Andy Burnham, another former new Labour cabinet minister and now Metro Mayor for Greater Manchester, says that the ambition has to be bigger because the problem is so deep. I keep saying the North-South divide is no accident. It's the product of UK national policy over many decades under, under many governments. And we either decide to change it or we, or we don't. And this is the thing about the levelling up debate. It was a slogan without real, uh, real substance. But I would say the fact, the good thing that it has done is it's put regional inequality up there as a, as a major political issue. One thing I would say, observing the, observing the COVID inquiry so far and, and what's coming out, and in some way, you could say there were shades of something similar at the time when we were in government, although nowhere near as sort of extreme as what we're seeing at the moment. The model of running the country with power being in the hands of a very small number of people in Downing Street actually is a model that's now completely out of time. And in a pandemic, became quite dangerous, actually. So I think the time has arrived for a very big change. Devolution has been the most functional part of public policy in recent times. And I think an incoming Labour government should really work with it and uh, understand everything that it can do to improve the health of people, communities and the nation. I really struck Paul by the German model, the, the, the irony being that Britain had a hand in creating post-Second World War. You know, there is a constitution in Germany, Germany a basic law that requires equivalent living standards between the 16 lender of Germany. And just imagine if we'd had a written constitution with something like that in the same period, you know, the post-war period. We'd, we'd be living in a very different country than the one we're actually living in uh, now if we'd have had that same uh, commitment to the rebuilding of Britain post-war with a uh, firm commitment to equivalent living standards across the, the nations and regions. The roots of regional inequality in Britain do indeed go back decades, not least to the 1980s when the slow death of traditional manufacturing industries accelerated dramatically during Margaret Thatcher's reign. And anger over unemployment and a sense of neglect spilled over into riots. In Toxteth, Liverpool, in 1981, things looked grim. But as the rioters fell back, they set fire to more buildings. And sporadic looting, which had been going on all night, now spread. Shop after shop was plundered and goods scattered around as the youths fled. And still the bricks, stones and lumps of iron were thrown. Worst of all, the petrol bombs. The riots began in Upper Parliament Street in Toxteth, itself an irony for an area that felt a long way from Westminster's concerns. The then Environment Secretary, Michael Heseltine, had been persuading Mrs Thatcher to let him use the state to regenerate run-down and deprived areas. But the riots brought home to him, for the first time, just how urgent the problem was. 
it uh, submerged me in a world of which I had no real experience, a world of poverty, of social tension, uh, of frustration, uh, in which the structure of society just wasn't working. And this is the sort of thing, of course, that you can read about and you can talk about, but that's not the same thing as being absolutely overwhelmed by it. I suppose that I was the most interventionist minister we've ever seen in the sense that uh, I not only um, did the development corporations in London and Liverpool, but after the Liverpool riots of 1981, I micromanaged an agenda of 20 or 30 projects in Liverpool uh, in order to prove that things could work in that city. But the problem was, having drawn up the list when I first went after the riots, it was quite apparent to me there was no one there to lead the process of uh, regeneration. Uh, so I had to do it, and I had a team of public-private sector secondees who worked full-time. I visited the city every Thursday, and Friday I examined the details of any blockage or frustration and tried to sort it out. There's never been anything quite so interventionist, and I did that for 18 months. Liverpool today is a regenerated city, with the Albert Dock that Heseltine protected now thriving, as well as the festival gardens he oversaw. Yet regeneration under the Conservatives was driven in part by a desire to take control away from Labour Council's strongholds. Heseltine told me that when he was Environment Secretary, he only won Margaret Thatcher's backing to intervene in London's derelict docks because he told her the East End was full of communist councillors who could be bypassed by a public-private development corporation. Well, there was a meeting in Number 10, and Geoffrey Howe said, as Chancellor, there's no money. Keith Joseph said it was intervention of the sort that uh, the government had been elected to avoid. And I had sympathy with both these views, but I told her that I had been talking to Reg Prentice, who had been a Labour MP in the East End of London and was now a Conservative MP, who had told me, I said, that all the councillors down there were communists, which I think influenced Margaret's reaction that uh, if we didn't take some pretty dramatic steps, we'd never get any progress. And when Labour's left-wing councils later tried to fight back against Mrs Thatcher and her cuts, she reacted by centralising power. Ed Balls, who led a study into regional inequality by King's College London and Harvard University, says memories of that era strongly influenced new Labour too. Antagonism towards local government, which was really driven by Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s, had a very long hangover, certainly for Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, all the problems with local government in the 1980s for, for Labour, think of what was happening in Lambeth, in Liverpool, meant that local government as delivery partner was risky. And I think there was definitely a, a focus on national government from the centre making things happen. Think of the New Deal jobs programme that wasn't handed over to local government, that was driven from the centre of government. And I think it took a long time to rebuild that um trust and to rebuild confidence. Ball says that it took years for Blair to realise that Ken Livingstone could be a partner, not an enemy of a Labour government. It was great Labour introduced and elected Mayor for London, 
But under Ken Livingston, it took a long time for that to be a trusted partnership in the way that you might think of it as, um, you know, the Conservatives with Andy Street in the West Midlands. In the end, we got there with Crossrail with Ken Livingston. And I had a series of meetings and dinners with Ken Livingston trying to thrash out Crossrail in that sort of period, 2006, seven. But that was 10 years into the Labour government. And in the early years, that was much, much harder. Keir Starmer started 2023 with a bold new promise to hand more power from Whitehall to places outside London and the South East. And he was keen to turn Boris Johnson's take back control mantra into something different. The control people want is control over their lives and their communities. So we will embrace the take back control message, but we'll turn it from a slogan into a solution, from a catchphrase into change. We will spread control out of Westminster, devolve new powers over employment support, transport, energy, climate change, housing, culture, childcare provision and how councils run their finances. And we'll give communities a new right to request powers which go beyond even that. All this will be in a new take back control bill, a centrepiece of our first King's speech. Rachel Wolfe, who co-authored the Tory manifesto, suspects that Starmer will confuse things by trying to reuse the take-back control message. But she does believe that ending Britain's highly centralised way of governing can help its economic revival. I think we're in an age of anti-politics and more and more. I think people have zero trust in what any politician says. They don't have any particular anticipation that Keir Starmer is going to do a better job. They just hate the current lot. You know, there's very low trust. Does it make a difference politically? Do people reward you for devolution? Is it the thing they most want to take back control on? No. The reason take back control worked in the Brexit campaign is because people wanted control of money for the NHS and immigration. So it it doesn't sort of work magically on everything. It's not a particularly good slogan. I do think going faster and further and pulling the lever quite hard on devolution is probably the most effective midterm lever that you've got on changing how some places operate. I think politicians always somehow think they have more time than they do. You have to do things fast and you have to try and deliver things on the ground fast. Jill Rutter of the Institute for Government Think Tank says that the key is to have the Treasury behind any plan, preferably with some hard cash. The big push on devolution, decentralisation in England really only came when the Treasury got behind it with George Osborne. We'd had attempt after attempt run out of the communities and local government, uh, whatever the local government department was called that year, which had sort of failed because they could never persuade other departments to give up budgets and powers. You actually got the Treasury pushing the agenda and things changed. You'll only be able to make some of these happen if you get some of the money attached to it as well. Lord Heseltine says that his own No Stone Unturned report for David Cameron included more powers for metro mayoral authorities along the line Starmer is now proposing. Well, it's all my idea, isn't it? <laughs> so if the Labour Party had come round to them, well, that, that is only to be welcomed. I asked him if he was also keen on Starmer's other plan for urban renewal, creating new towns just like the ones Clement Attlee started in the 1940s and were continued by Tories in the 1950s. Keir Starmer's talked about creating a new generation of new towns, easing planning restrictions, getting building going. Would, would you be in favour of that? 
Yes, if, if you start with a new town corporation, basically you're, you're probably starting with uh, large areas of unused or underused land. And you can create the whole community of place. But if you're dealing with dereliction in a city, of course, it is more complex. Angela Rayner says that levelling up has to ultimately be about life chances and opportunities provided by the state, similar to the way that New Labour's Sure Start was a long-term project that helped young people like herself. I got opportunity. I got free school meal. I got education. I got a council flat. When I needed it, I got opportunity. Look where I am. If you starve them of opportunity, then the whole country is worse off for it. I see many wealthy people who are Labour people and the reason they're Labour people and they come up to me and say, Ange, you remind me of my mum. My mum was a single mum or I, I, my mum did everything. She, she went without food so that I could get my school books. You're listening to Labour's Plan for Power with me, Paul War, Chief Political Correspondent of The Eye. Our team of expert journalists get to the truth with their reporting bringing you incisive news, features and analysis. Don't miss out on our Black Friday deal. Get a full year of award-winning journalism for £70 off. That's just £24.99 for 12 months. To sign up and save, head over to inews.co.uk forward slash podcasts to get this deal. I, for Open Minds, subscribe today. But will ministers in a new Labour government really give up control that easily? And would Chancellor Rachel Reeves? And even if the Treasury signs up, will Keir Starmer as Prime Minister really want to gain power, only to give it away again? Ed Ball says that both Number 10 and Number 11 Downing Street have to be fully on board. You don't get a focus on regional outcomes and decentralisation unless the Treasury signs up. Often the Treasury with the Deputy Prime Minister. Think of Heseltine, think of John Prescott. But in Britain, things don't really change if the Treasury and Number 10 are all on the same page. And I think one of the problems, both under Gordon Brown as Chancellor and George Osborne as Chancellor, is Number 10 didn't really go for it. If Number 10 was actually breathing down education's neck saying, you've got to decentralise this, you've got to let go, then they would have done But if number 10 is not really giving it full throat as well, and I don't think really over the whole period we look at, you can ever say there was a prime minister who really championed um, this in, in, in policy delivery terms. Andy Burnham is happy that a Tory government is edging towards giving regions like Greater Manchester some degree of financial autonomy like Scotland and Wales. But he wants more of a say over things like skills and welfare policy. And the mayor says that devolving power and funds actually saves the taxpayer money. Well, let me just say it's really clearly, Paul, and it's born out of experience and seeing things both in this context where I am now, in my previous life as a minister, national government wastes more money than local government, definitely. No question about it. And it is linked to the pet schemes that come along and the kind of chasing of headlines. It's linked to that. But it's more about the way it works, you know, where ministers are in and then they're gone, you know, and then you get this chopping and changing all the while. HS2's costs, you know, got out of control, partly for that reason. Or take another example in in the pandemic. 
We were saying in March, do testing and tracing through us, through the systems that we've got through our directors of public, public health. But Whitehall, in its wisdom, took a decision to outsource this thing in a, you know, building something new from scratch through billions, you know, thrown at, you know, third party entities. And what did you get then at the end of that? You actually got a system that was based on call centers rather than what they would have had, which is a system based on people knocking on doors and, and doing it, doing it properly. Michael Heseltine says that Whitehall and Westminster still need to trust local areas much more to deliver their national objectives. The first and obvious change that has to come is that psychological realisation that if you want to make a levelling up agenda work, you have to embrace the talents and energies and resources of the local communities with a structure that provides local leadership and then enter into a partnership with central government in order to make sure that A, what they want to do is compatible with central government policy and B, that they have the legal powers and the financial resources to achieve what they have set out as their structural plan. Rachel Wolfe says that special advisers who often have an Oxbridge arrogance and believe local areas simply lack the competence to handle big budgets or policy, need to realise that areas outside London are packed with innovation and talent. But she says that at some point, Labour and other parties will have to grasp the nettle of handing more tax-raising powers to local areas to give them real freedom. The reason councils work is not because they get magically better people, but because they're fundamentally responsive in a different way. They understand their places in a different way and they understand the differences in places. I would actually say, though, that after a certain point, devolution becomes fake unless there's fiscal devolution. But it actually is what you need if you want places to really run themselves. Andy Burnham is certainly keen on his own area being able to raise its own funds. He already has a mayor's precept, a top-up to council taxes, which he's used to fund his new B network of buses. And he'd like to have the same powers that the Scottish government has to raise a nightly hotel tax. Is there a case for going further? For sure. I personally don't think that a tourist tax should be off the table. Why should it? You know, British tourists pay those taxes when they go to other places. You know, why shouldn't a, a city region like ours, which... You know, receives considerable number of visitors to come and see music, football. I mean, you, you know the, the the city region well, Paul. You know, why, why shouldn't we? I'm not saying we would rush to do it, but there's a case for it. In fact, our hotels have done it voluntarily to raise money to put it into, I think, more, more street cleansing and, and those things. So there's a, there's a case uh, for it. Burnham also wants land value capture for areas like his a scheme that would raise money from private firms that benefit from improved local road and rail links, like the £16 billion promised for the North. So if we had that ability, that mechanism, we could turn the £16 billion maybe into 20 or, or even or even more, and then we could have that underground station at Manchester Piccadilly, which we've long uh, argued for. So interestingly, the rail minister, when he was in Manchester recently, said he might be open to that idea and I reminded him that I was Chief Secretary to the Treasury when Alistair Darling asked me to put a funding package together for what was then called Crossrail, now, of course, the Elizabeth Line. You know, it wasn't an easy thing for a Northern MP to do, but I did. I, I do try and 
keep it secret these days, but 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 some people have found out. <laughs> but we did put a funding package together. And it was a very creative funding package, actually, because it had contributions from London business and council taxpayers. But the big missed opportunity, I think, was land value capture. Because if you look at the Elizabeth line now, land values have gone up significantly on pretty much every station along that line. And why shouldn't some of that money have been kind of captured and brought back in to help fund the infrastructure in the first place? I think it should have been. And that's why we're arguing for the same as we build a new line between Liverpool and Manchester. But handing power to local areas is not universally popular among Labour MPs. Some older hands on the right prefer a strong central government delivering national policies. They worry about postcode lotteries created by different areas too, and fear the take-back control bill could be a repeat of David Cameron's big society. Jill Rutter of the Institute for Government says such tensions will be a challenge. But other ministers prepared to give up? Yeah. Did they wait 13 years... 14 years to get their mitts on the leaves of power, only to say, hello, someone called Andy, it's all over to you. I mean, they might think, well, I've done the hard slog through Parliament. He's been larging it as mayor of wherever so far. Am I really going to hand over giant chunks of my budget to them? One of the things that's very frustrating for ministers is that when they get there, they feel they're held accountable for everything that's happening wherever it's happening, yeah. Then they're asked questions on the floor of the House and immediately they pull in all the power to the centre of government. To what extent are they really happy to entrust the fate of their government to a range of very different, you know, differently equipped political leaders, some who won't be of the same party, all around the country with, you know, in authorities, very different capabilities, maybe different priorities, who will be claiming the credit for themselves and who, when it's convenient, will be shoving the blame up the chain to Whitehall as why they can't deliver on what they promised their electorates. And I know some people think, you know, you actually can't devolve too much. You can't let a thousand flowers bloom the mission-led government needs to be much more concentrated than that, and you can't sort of just uh, you know just have it all sort of let go in a sort of you know uh, and let's see where it falls. That you really need to be much more focused and drive things out of Whitehall. Peter Mandelson stresses just what a huge change Starmer is proposing to the way Britain runs itself, and he has a note of caution about how hard it will be. In effect, in effect, what you'll be doing is saying you want a central government that's strong enough and powerful enough to drive the five missions, at the same time as transferring power and resources away from the centre to the rest of the country. Now, how Labour approaches that and pulls that sort of tw- those, the, those twin overhauls and objectives off, uh, I think is going to be challenging and very, very interesting and potentially very beneficial. But I don't think it's going to be easy or simple to pull off. Both are desirable, both are laudable, both, if they work, will result in better government of our country. But getting there is not going to be easy. Michael Heseltine wants more devolution and says that the United States' federal way of governing itself, like Germany's, proves it works. You need to devolve a great deal of the power currently in Whitehall, in the functional departments, industry, health transport, housing, all different departments. So a lot of their powers needs to go to directly elected 
mayoral authorities, about 60 of them in the country at large. Secondly, government needs to coordinate its own approach. You need a regional office of government in which the civil servants of the central departments are coordinated so that they can interface with the elected mayoral authorities in a coherent way. Uh, you then also need to have the directly elected mayor for each of those 60 authorities so that there is somebody in charge. People can identify that person. And that person should be responsible for coordinating the strengths and opportunities of the very different areas over which they are elected. If you do that, then you change the whole emphasis of the way this country is governed from a, a top-down imposition to a much more genuine partnership between people in the localities and the elected government. Just look at every other capitalist economy in the world. They all have this partnership. Mandelson agrees that Labour needs something extra in its armoury in the shape of regional development agencies and says his party needs to think harder about how it'll actually make its plans work. I'm a strong advocate of new machinery to engineer and bring about regional growth. I want to rebalance the UK's economy. Uh, I'm a former Northern, Northeastern Labour Member of Parliament. So in a sense, I would say that. But also I was responsible at the beginning of the last Labour government uh, with John Prescott for the creation of the regional development agencies. We are going to need some sort of machinery like regional uh, development agencies, perhaps not as many as nine, but four or five that are going to work with mayors and combined authorities and local authorities in key parts of the country where we want to rebalance and drive economic growth and distribute prosperity more fairly uh, across the country. But that's got to be done by central government to create those agencies, which are then going to be benefit the regions. I don't think that the uh, Labour Party at the moment is focused sufficiently uh, on that area uh, of government. I don't think the thinking is going far enough or deep enough. And that's the sort of experience, I think, from the last Labour government that they would benefit from drawing on. But for Angela Rayner, the key is about local areas feeling ownership of policy. And she points to her own experience when she was a care worker and a union rep to set out just why she's a big believer in devolution. When we were to home help, they wanted us to, they cha- wanted to change our hours because they wanted to deliver a service seven days a week, 7am to 11pm, right? Monday to Sunday. And they wanted to change all our hours and put us all on flexible contracts. And, and, and all, all the girls who I worked alongside, many of them, the, the kids that got older or whatever, they were like, I can't do those hours. I'm not going to, I'll have to leave. You know, I'm not the main breadwinner. I, I'm going to have to leave my job. I went to management and said, right, you want us to work 7am till 10pm, 11pm over seven days, yeah? Yes. Well, let us do that. We'll manage it. Thank you. You toodle off. We're a team. We'll, we'll deliver that service. Well, actually, what we found is, A, we all picked our hours that worked alongside, that worked for us. Actually, it worked better to, like, give give that flexibility, give that ownership. And actually, it, it went really well. Like, sickness and absence went down because no one was having to say, oh, I'm going off sick because my son's off sick and I can't get a childminder. Well, I, I said to the managers, I said, we're not children. 
When people feel they have control over what they're trying to achieve, they own it. You just got to give people a little bit more empowerment. And it's surprising how well that can pay off. That's the only way we're going to get that prosperity that Keir talks about, or levelling up, as the government say, and that opportunities for people is by getting it to the lowest level and getting people to see it, see the powers in their own communities, because that's how they'll really buy into it and affect the change that is required. Given Labour's current polling lead, many assume its former red wall seats in the North and Midlands will just revert to their past habits. But Andy Burnham says it's only by delivering local policies that matter to working class voters that real endorsement can happen. He points to his bus improvements and his new plan for post-14 vocational education through an MBAC, a Manchester equivalent of the government's EBAC qualification. I hate, I hate to call it the red wall, but I guess I'll have to because it's become a, an established term. But those policies resonate in the red wall and they're real when you do them from this level because it's not just a sort of gimmick and then everyone moves on in Westminster. When we say something, we do it and we see it through. It's not just we're prioritising different issues it's a different way of doing politics. And I do think, honestly, my old world has got a lot to learn from it. As an MP in a seat where many of her constituents voted for Brexit, Angela Rayner says Labour's big mistake would be to ignore the thirst for change that drove that Leave vote. I think they feel left behind and frustrated and also patronised. So the, the red wall for me is... Ultimately, and I talk about it a lot because I think it still has a big sway over what happens here. It's a class system. We still have a class system in this country. It's our accents. It's where we're from. It's our upbringing. Still to this day, your parents' jobs are what determines your mobility more than your education or anything else. In Brexit in particular, people felt very patronised, like somehow they they didn't know what they wanted or, oh, there isn't a problem there. And it's like, well, it is a problem. Don't tell me it's not a problem. I I can see that problem and I want it dealt with. (laughs) And they were just felt like no one was listening to them. Michael Heseltine says that national interests should always come before party interest. The political rewards may follow, but the secondary. It's not the political consequences, it's the economic, social and cultural consequences that should be the standards by which we judge the policy. I remember somebody saying to me when I was deeply involved in Liverpool in the 90, early 80s, why do you spend your time there? There are no votes for us there. I was appalled. The idea that what I was supposed to be doing with my political life was simply gathering votes from one party. Uh, I I thought I was doing what was right for the people concerned. And Ed Ball says the key is for Labour to build on a cross-party consensus. You've got to decide this is a priority. We're going to focus on it for 20 years and you're going to put in place an approach to elected mayors or combined authorities or decentralisation where we say we're going to stick with this for 20 years and it's not going to be chopped and changed parliament to parliament. In the end, only prime ministers can do that. If Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer were up for that, you could start to deliver real change. But if it's um, not up on their agenda or they're not willing to agree, we'll just carry on. But what about the woman who would deliver Labour's levelling up agenda in government? Labour insiders say that people have missed that Angela Rayner now has a big say over several policy areas, just like John Prescott did under Tony Blair. 
she would be in charge not just of local councils and regeneration, but also has responsibility for Labour's plans to deliver stronger rights at work. She'd also have the clout of being Deputy Prime Minister, chairing cabinet committees that cover everything from transport to trade union legislation. Some have compared her not just to Prescott, but to Barbara Castle, who introduced Labour's historic legislation to give women equal pay. The first thing that comes to mind is like, wow, people are actually comparing me to these big names in our historic movement. I, I, that freaks me out a little bit, so I don't think like that. And this is why I don't over-prepare for PMQs either, because I'd psych myself out. It's like, and don't, don't zoom out, focus in on delivery. They're big challenges that we face as a country, work, insecure work, making sure that there's good work, making sure that we've got good, safe homes for people and making sure we get this devolution to change, like I say, these things that matter to people every day in their lives. They're really big, meaty issues, but I'm very practical. I was a trade unionist. Some on the left see Keir Starmer as a centralising authoritarian, not least because of the way his office has imposed its will on parliamentary selections. Rayner's instincts seem to be more collegiate, and some of her admirers see her as the conscience of the Labour Party, the label once applied to Prescott. During recent party divisions over how to react to the crisis in Gaza, she's been loyal to the leader while making clear she wants dissent to be allowed. Look, we have to be diverse. Like, you don't just need a load of Angela Rayner's, that would be awful, there's only one. But you, but you don't need a load of Keir Starmer's, there's only one. But I don't see myself as the conscience of the Labour Party. I, I'm one linking it. But if you haven't got the other links and it's all the same, you know, you can't make a jigsaw if all the pieces are exactly the same. It has to have different bits to link up. And that that's the crucial bit for me. If we want to be a successful Labour government, we have to be diversity. Diversity in thought. So we have to be challenging to each other. And that, I think that's, you know, people can have different opinions on what we should do. We, but equally, we have to then settle on a position after hearing it and then say, that's, you know, we've I, I've got different... I don't agree with Kira every time me and Kira have hit a policy issue, but some are win, some are lose. We're a political movement and we're a party that wants to govern. Getting the balance right will certainly be the task of a Labour government. Rebalancing power between Whitehall and England's regions is one of its big promises for the next election. But rebalancing wealth and life chances away from the South East has proved difficult for all parties over the past few decades. And as Boris Johnson discovered, winning the red wall of parliamentary seats is a lot easier than delivering long-lasting change. Thanks for listening to the iPodcast, Labour's Plan for Power. If you liked it, do please leave us a nice review on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps other listeners to find us and supports our in-depth reporting. This podcast was produced and edited by Julia Webster. Next time, we look at the party's plans for post-Brexit Britain.